0: enjoy the little things, for one day you may look back and realise they were the big things.
1: We can only be said to be alive in those moments when our hearts are conscious of our
2: treasures. The hardest arithmetic to master is that which enables us to count our blessings. Or, as Sterling K. Brown
3: put it simply, always have an attitude of gratitude. This month, our theme is gratitude. I'm Pippa Curtis and I'm sure very grateful to be with me here in the studio are Phil Lee, Hello. Jane Fares and Catherine Neal, Hello. who are all pleased to bring you this, the first talking magazine of 2022, the February Look Here. Mayor Angelou had a prolific and power-laden career as singer, dancer, actress activist, storyteller and poet. Against a dark and difficult but intensely colourful background, she was always grateful still to be alive. She wrote a poem on ageing.
0: Phil. When you see me sitting quietly like a sack upon a shelf, don't think I need your chattering, I'm listening to myself. Hold, stop, don't pity me, hold, stop your sympathy. Understanding if you've got it, otherwise I'll do without it. When my bones are stiff and aching and my feet won't climb the stair, I will only ask one favour. Don't bring me no rocking chair. When you see me walking, stumbling, don't study and get it wrong. Cos tired don't mean lazy and every goodbye ain't gone. I'm the same person I was back then. A little less hair, a little less chin, a lot less lungs and much less wind. But ain't I lucky I can still breathe in. Saying
3: thank you is good for you. Don't take my word for it. Plenty of scientists have been
1: studying it. Jane. Research has found that when we express gratitude, the brain releases a surge of dopamine, a neurotransmitter that plays an important role in many vital functions, including pleasure, reward, motivation, attention and bodily movements. This surge of dopamine gives you a natural high, creating good feelings that motivate you to repeat specific behaviours, including expressing gratitude even more. Dopamine also increases the experience and duration of positive emotions. In short, it helps you feel good. And research shows that when you feel good, you are more likely to spread your positivity to those you work, live and play with. As one study found, showing gratitude promotes pro-social behaviour, the kind of behaviour that endears you to others and moves you to act for the greater good rather than only for your own benefit. And not just Dopamine. According to Alex Korb in his book about using neuroscience to treat depression, the simple act of being grateful also increases serotonin production in the anterior cingulate cortex. Serotonin is often called the happiness chemical because it contributes to feelings of well-being, stabilises our mood and helps us feel more relaxed. The medial prefrontal cortex is an area of the human brain linked to learning and making decisions. In one study, fMRI scans were performed with two groups. The first were directed to think of a recent time they felt really grateful and replay it in their mind, while the second group spoke their gratitude out loud, as though it were being recorded to be shared with the person they expressed it to. The scans showed there was a surge of activity in the medial prefrontal cortex area of the brain when subjects expressed gratitude that was different from the brain activity seen when the subjects were feeling grateful but didn't express it. The benefit to the prefrontal cortex doesn't come from just being grateful – but from expressing gratitude. A recent study found that practicing gratitude activates the ventromedial prefrontal cortex associated with what the researchers describe as neural pure altruism, which basically means that your brain craves the experience of giving. In the study, two groups of participants were asked to write in a journal every day for three weeks. The first group was given general prompts, unrelated to gratitude, while the second group was prompted to write about experiences of gratitude and things they felt thankful for. When the FMRI scans of both groups were compared, the results showed that the group that had focused on gratitude had greater activation of the VMPFC and neural pure altruism. The researchers concluded that gratitude biases the brain's reward system towards rewards for those versus oneself. By giving, you become more likely to want to connect with others by giving again in the future. Gratitude truly seems to be for the greater good. Catherine was reading David Copperfield
3: by
2: Charles Dickens and came across this passage. Uriah Heep's Confidences Seeing a light in the little round office and immediately feeling myself attracted towards Uriah Heep, who had a sort of fascination for me, I went in there instead. I found Uriah reading a great fat book with such demonstrative attention that his lank forefinger followed up every line as he read and made clammy tracks along the page, or so I fully believed, like a snail. You're working late tonight, Uriah, says I. Yes, Master Copperfield, says Uriah. As I was getting on the stool opposite to talk to him more conveniently, I observed that he had not such a thing as a smile about him, and that he could only widen his mouth and make two hard creases down his cheeks, one on each side, to stand for one. I'm not doing office work, Master Copperfield, said Uriah. What work, then? I asked. I'm improving my legal knowledge, Master Copperfield, said Uriah. I'm going through Tid's practice. Oh, what a writer Mr Tid is, Master Copperfield. My stool was such a tower of observation that as I watched him reading on again, after this rapturous exclamation and following up the lines with his forefinger... I observed that his nostrils, which were thin and pointed, with sharp dints in them, had a singular and most uncomfortable way of expanding and contracting themselves, that they seemed to twinkle, instead of his eyes, which hardly ever twinkled at all. I suppose you are quite a great lawyer, I said, after looking at him for some time. Me, Master Copperfield? said Uriah. Oh no, I'm a very humble person. It was no fancy of mine about his hands, I observed, for he frequently ground the palms against each other as if to squeeze them dry and warm, besides often wiping them in a stealthy way on his pocket handkerchief. "'I am well aware that I am the humblest person going,' said Uriah Heep modestly. "'Let the other be where he may. "'My mother is likewise a very humble person. "'We live in an humble abode, Master Copperfield.' have much to be thankful for my father's former calling was humble he was a sexton what is he now i asked he is a partaker of glory at present master copperfield said uriah heep but we have much to be thankful for how much have i to be thankful for in living with mr wickfield i asked uriah if he'd been with mr wickfield long "'I've been with him going on four year, Master Copperfield,' said Uriah, "'shutting up his book after carefully marking the place where he'd left off. "'Since a year after my father's death, how much have I to be thankful for in that? "'How much have I to be thankful for in Mr Wickfield's kind intention to give me my articles, "'which would otherwise not lay within the humble means of mother and self?' Then, when your article time is over, you'll be a regular lawyer, I suppose said I, with the blessing of providence, Master Copperfield returned Uriah, perhaps you'll be a partner in Mr. Wickfield's business one of these days, I said, to make myself agreeable, and it will be Wickfield and Heap, or Heap, late Wickfield, oh no, Master Copperfield returned Uriah, shaking his head, I am much too humble for that. He certainly did look uncommonly like the carved face on the beam outside my window as he sat in his humility, eyeing me sideways with his mouth widened and the creases in his cheeks. Mr Wickfield is a most excellent man, Master Copperfield, said Uriah. If you've known him long, you know it, I'm sure, much better than I can inform you. I replied that I was certain he was, but that I had not known him long myself, though he was a friend of my aunt's. ''Oh, indeed, Master Copperfield,'' said Uriah, ''your aunt is a sweet lady, Master Copperfield.'' He had a way of writhing when he wanted to express enthusiasm, which was very ugly, and which diverted my attention from the compliment he'd paid my relation to the snaky twisting of his throat and body. A sweet lady, Master Copperfield, said Uriah Heep. She has a great admiration for Miss Agnes, Master Copperfield, I believe. I said, yes, boldly, not that I knew anything about it, heaven forgive me. I hope you have too, Master Copperfield, said Uriah, but I'm sure you must have. Everybody must have, I returned. Oh, thank you, Master Copperfield, said Uriah Heep, for that remark. It is so true. Humble as I am, I know it is so true. Oh, thank you, Master Copperfield. He writhed himself quite off his stool in the excitement of his feelings and, being off, began to make arrangements for going home.
3: Charles Dickens, Uriah Heep, being ever so grateful. If you were to allow someone to live in their decaying camper van in your front garden, free of charge for 15 years, you might expect them to be pretty grateful too. The writer Alan Bennett had every right to expect at least a thank you from the occupier of his front garden in Camden Town, but none was forthcoming. The BBC made a film about it all called The Lady in the Van, and Bennett kept a diary about the filming. It begins on the 20th of February, 2015.
0: In the colourful and variegated background of Camden Town, Miss Mary Shepherd seems, in some respects, not unusual. She was a vagrant, but a stationary one, resident for the last 15 years of her life a few feet from my front door, where there was a paved area. The architect had wishfully called it a patio, just big enough to take a car, or, as it transpired, a van. The neighbourhood has never been without its eccentrics, a steady assortment of which was supplied by Arlington House, one of the Roughton houses put up in the 19th century to provide respectable working men with a bed and board at a reasonable rate. And so it admirably did. though it also housed some unusual characters, one or two of them straight out of Samuel Beckett. Roaming the streets beside was a cast of itinerant alcoholics who roosted the steps of any empty premises or the vicinity of any warm air outlet. If Miss Shepherd stood out in this company, it was not as she perhaps imagined on account of some degree of social superiority, but because she had, however decrepit, a place of her own in the shape of the van. She never had to sleep in a doorway, as many of the men did who had not managed to be taken in at Arlington House. My decision to invite Miss S to put the van in my drive in 1974 was taken reluctantly. But while it was in the street, the van was parked directly opposite the table in the bay window where I did my work. Anything that happened to Miss Shepherd, from the everyday skirmishes she had with neighbours and passers-by, to the more serious provocations regularly visited on her by hooligans or the malevolent, all these were a distraction to me when I was trying to write. Moving Miss S into the garden got her out of the way of passers-by and the curious so that both of us could thereby have a quieter life and I could, for much of the time, forget about her. It was this element of self-interest or self-concern about the move that has always made me reluctant to consider it as an act of charity. I was looking after myself, Miss Shepherd only incidentally. The person who never felt the need to go in for such moral analysis and who I'm sure didn't think it was kindness if she ever gave it a thought was Miss Shepherd herself. To her, parking in my drive was a favour that she was doing me, not the other way round. To have allowed herself to feel in the least bit grateful would have been a chink in her necessary armour, braced as she always was against the world. The van always came in handy as a conversation piece. I don't have much small talk... For anyone landed with me at a party, how's your old lady was a good standby. That she had become, even in her lifetime, something of a celebrity would not have surprised her, and she would consider it entirely fitting that some of her pamphlets are now in the Bodleian Library at Oxford. Miss Shepherd's presence in the garden didn't, of course, stop me jotting things down, making notes on her activities, and chronicling her comic encounters. Indeed, in my bleaker moments, it sometimes seemed that this was all there was to note down, since nothing else was happening to me. Still, there was no question of writing or publishing anything about her until she was dead or gone from the garden, and as time passed, the two came to seem the same thing. Occasionally, newspapers took an interest and tried to blow the situation up into a jolly news item, but the ramparts of privacy were more impregnable in those days, and she was generally left to herself. Miss Shepard was solipsistic to a degree, and in her persistent refusal to take into account the concerns or feelings of anyone else except herself, and her inability to see the world and what happened in it, except as it affected her, she behaved more like a man than a woman. I took this undeviating selfishness to have something to do with staying alive. Gratitude, humility, forgiveness or fellow feelings were foreign to her nature, or had become so over the years but had she been otherwise, she might not have survived as long as she did. It's now, over a quarter of a century since Miss Shepherd died, but hearing a van door slide shut will still take me back to the time when she was in the garden. For Marcel, the narrator in Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, the sound that took him back was that of the gate of his aunt's idyllic garden. With me, it's the door of a broken-down comma van. The discrepancy is depressing, but then most writers discover quite early on that they're not going to be, Proust. Beside, I couldn't have heard my own garden gate because in order to deaden the irritating noise, Miss Shepherd had insisted on me putting a piece of chewing gum on the latch. Here's a poem about
2: gratitude by William Carlos Williams. This is just to say... I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold.
3: Have you heard of Random Acts of Kindness Day? This was initiated in 1995 in Denver, Colorado, by a non-profit organisation called the Random Acts of Kindness Foundation. The event spread to New Zealand nine years later in 2004 and the observance of the event became more and more widespread. We've heard about the benefits to be had from feeling and expressing gratitude but it seems that those very same benefits in all their detail can be gained equally by performing the very acts of kindness for which other folk are grateful. The idea is that when a person does an act of kindness for another person, it makes the person receiving it more likely to perform an act of kindness for someone else. This can unfold exponentially. So don't think your act of kindness doesn't matter, because it does. In fact, it can have farther reaching effects than you might be able to imagine. One study suggests that when a person performs an act of kindness, their brain releases endorphins. These endorphins not only produce a wave of euphoria, but they also are the brain's natural painkiller. And this happens after just one instance of kindness. Another study has suggested that if a person continues to do nice things for other people, then they will experience an almost 25% drop in cortisol. This drop in cortisol levels can not only reduce their blood pressure levels, but it can also slow the natural ageing of their body by a small amount. Or, at least, that's what the study suggests. According to the Random Acts of Kindness Foundation, kindness is a skill that can be taught, and many a moral tale in literature has that thought at its heart.
4: "Hallo!" growled Scrooge, in his accustomed voice as near as he could feign it. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir, said Bob. I'm behind my time. You are, repeated Scrooge. Yes, I think you are. "'Step this way, sir, if you please.' "'It's only once a year, sir,' pleaded Bob. "'It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir.' "'Now I'll tell you what, my friend,' said Scrooge. "'I'm not going to stand for this sort of thing any longer. "'And therefore,' he continued, "'leaping from his stool "'and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat "'that he staggered backwards. "'And therefore,' "'I am about to raise your salary.' "'Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. "'He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, "'holding him and calling to the people in the court "'for help and a straight waistcoat. "'A merry Christmas, Bob,' said Scrooge, "'with an earnestness that could not be mistaken "'as he clapped him on the back. "'A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, "'than I have given you for many a year. "'I'll raise your salary.' and endeavour to assist your struggling family. And we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop. Make up the fires, and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another I, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to tiny Tim... He was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little heeded them, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. And it was always said of Scrooge that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that truly be said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone.
3: Stephen Buckley reading the conclusion to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And while we're in literary mode, Phil has been enjoying one of the talking books from our library.
0: I've gone for another historical novel this time. It's Labyrinth by Kate Moss, but it's a very different proposition from the sharp story we looked at last. The book is the first of her Languedoc trilogy, though it is a complete tale in itself. It's a time-slip novel, which involves the narrative switching between 1209 and the present day, which in this case is 2005. These transitions can be confusing sometimes, but here they're facilitated by being voiced by two different readers. Anton Lesser looks after the storyline in 1209 and thereafter, and Amelia Fox, the modern day. Both are excellent readers, clear, modulated, and Anton Lesser is particularly skilled at using his voice to convey a growing sense of menace, as in this short extract where a body has been found in the river.
1: Guillaume stumbled back against the wall. Peltier's hand was around his throat, pushing his head against the stone. I am warning you, Dumas. If you make one wrong step, I will see that you regret it. Do we understand one another?
0: The theme of the story lies in the concept of the Holy Grail, the cup used by Jesus at the Last Supper, and develops via the unfolding of the Catholic Church's punishment of beliefs it regarded as heresy in southern France, the lands called Languedoc in medieval times. We encounter Alaïs in the Carcassonne of 1209 and Alice, a volunteer archaeology, excavating beneath a precarious boulder inside a cave 800 years later. They will bookend the story as well as giving it a continuity, which I'll leave you to discover. There are some quotations in modern French and in the language known as Occitan, which was the language spoken in parts of southern France and which is still an official language of Catalonia. I believe it derives its name from the use in that region of France of the word "oc" rather than oui for yes. The quotations are short and I did not find that my lack of Occitan was a major problem. I loved listening to this story. It's cleverly thought out and conveys a convincing and enveloping sense of the past that can take you out of yourself and compel your full attention, which I was most happy to give. The author has an aptitude for creating an atmosphere which is reinforced by the quality of the reading. There are some strong passages in it, as you might expect, where medieval religious conflict and crusade is concerned, and the story does not duck some of the more disturbing detail. However, the book won the British Book Award for 2006. There are six CDs in good order in this abridged version and the story lasts for seven hours and 50 minutes. To listen on, let us know at Colin Chance House and we will put the CD in your envelope as soon as it's available. In the meantime, whatever you're listening to and however you're listening to it, I wish you an enjoyable and rewarding time. (laughs)
1: I well remember sitting down as a child on Christmas Day with a piece of paper and a pen to list who had given me which present. We were all taught to say thank you, usually by a letter or in person. Nowadays it's email, social media and sometimes no thank you at all. Although being of, let us say, the older generation, if someone doesn't say thank you without good reason, that is the end of their presents OK, I suppose that might seem harsh. Didn't Francis of Assisi say to give and not to count the cost? Is it too much to expect, at least an acknowledgement of receiving a gift? Mind you, I suppose the person might not have been told to say thank you. In 2018, before this pandemic struck, the average home received just 10 pieces of personal mail each year. Come to think of it, I don't think I've received a single letter this last year. It's all been online. Not the same, though, is it? It takes an effort to write a note, print the correct address on the envelope, stamp it and drop it in a postbox. And, of course, unlike an electronic message, thank you letters are not free.
0: Thank you all for this amazing award tonight.
5: Moviegoers, goers thank you for going to the theatre and seeing our films. I appreciate it. Thank you.
1: This is for my father. Thank you very much. The Oscars. Apparently, you're supposed to make your acceptance or thank you speech last for 45 seconds. But Greer Garson set a Guinness World Record for the longest Oscar speech in 1943, clocking in at five and a half minutes. Hilary Swank, Adrian Brody and Al Pacino have all ignored the 45-second limit and consequently found themselves at the receiving end of a will-you-stop-now stare. Shortest Oscar speech was delivered by Joe Pesky in 1991, a five-word acceptance speech. It's my privilege. Thank you. Instead of just saying thank you for her award at the BAFTAs, actress Emma Stone used the stage as a political platform to criticise President Trump, while filmmaker Ken Loach launched into a 90-second attack on the government. Thank you would have been enough. On the other hand, the Dalai Lama accepted his Nobel Peace Prize with a speech of profound gratitude but it also had a political stunt towards the suppression of Tibet and the oppression of democracy by China. As his award was for peace, it seems right that he should point out the problems facing his fight for peace in the world in general. America was given the Statue of Liberty by France to commemorate the alliance of France and America during the American Revolution. I hope they said thank you. In 1949, the French freighter Magellan steamed into New York harbour with Mercy America painted on its bow. The ship was carrying 49 railway cars filled with thousands of gifts donated by the people of France. A thank you for the food donated by American citizens to help rebuild Europe after World War II. Just two years before the Magellan arrived, the Marshall Plan inspired Americans to collect food and put their donations on board what they called the Friendship Train. The train's journey began in Los Angeles on November the 7th and arrived in New York before shipping off to Europe. When the train finally arrived in Lav, it was 700 cars long and valued at $40 million, which adjusted for inflation is a whopping $435 million today. A great big thank you.
3: Thank you, Jane. It's easy to take things that are a familiar part of everyday life for granted, and we forget that we owe considerable gratitude to the inventors, discoverers or developers of things like penicillin or the aeroplane, the internal combustion engine, or how about the wheel itself, a fundamental part of almost every mechanical device that makes our modern life possible. In the Smithsonian Magazine, the humble spinning disc became the hub of Megan Gambino's attention as she discovered some intriguing little-known facts
2: about the wheel. Throughout history, most inventions were inspired by the natural world, the idea for the pitchfork and table fork came from forked sticks the aeroplane from gliding birds but the wheel is 100% homo sapiens innovation as michael lobabera a professor of biology and anatomy at the university of chicago wrote in a 1983 issue of the american naturalist only bacterial flagella dung beetles and tumbleweeds come close and even they are wheeled organisms, in the loosest use of the term, since they use rolling as a form of locomotion. We tend to think that inventing the wheel was item number two on our to-do list after learning to walk upright, but several significant inventions predated the wheel by thousands of years. Sewing needles, woven cloth, rope, basket weaving, boats, and even the flute. Evidence indicates the first wheels were created to serve as potter's wheels around 3,500 BC in Mesopotamia, 300 years before someone figured out to use them for chariots. Researchers believe that the wheelbarrow first appeared in classical Greece sometime between the 6th and 4th centuries BC, then sprung up in China four centuries later and ended up in medieval Europe, perhaps by way of Byzantium or the Islamic world. Although wheelbarrows were expensive to purchase, they could pay for themselves in just three or four days in terms of labour savings.
0: Breaking on the wheel was a form of capital punishment in the Middle Ages and inspired no end of inventive methods of killing people. A person could be stretched across the face of a wheel and bludgeoned to death or have an iron-rimmed wheel pounded across their bones with a hammer. In another variation, St Catherine of Alexandria was wrapped round the rim of a spiked wheel and rolled across the ground in the early 4th century. Legend has it that the wheel divinely broke, sparing St Catherine's life until the Romans beheaded her. Since then, the breaking wheel has also been called the Catherine Wheel. St Catherine was named the patron saint of wheelwrights.
1: For centuries, tinkerers, philosophers, mathematicians and crackpots have tried to design perpetual motion devices that, once set in motion, would continue forever, producing more energy than they consume. One common take on this machine is a wheel or watermill that uses change in weight to continually rotate. The overbalanced wheel, for example, has weighted arms attached to the rim of the wheel that fold down or extend out. But no matter what the design, they all violate the first and second laws of thermodynamics, which state, respectively, that energy cannot be created or destroyed and that some energy is always lost in converting heat to work. The US Patent Office refuses to assess claims for perpetual motion devices unless the inventors can produce working models. Of course, the wheel
3: is of little use for transport if the ground beneath it is insufficiently robust, thinking here of something like the Sahara Desert, maybe. So in the Middle East and northern Africa, between the 2nd and the 6th centuries AD, camels were the preferred mode of transportation. Despite abandoning the wheel for hauling purposes, Middle Eastern societies continued to use wheels for
2: tasks such as irrigation, milling and pottery. In May 2001, shortly after a new patent system was introduced in Australia, John Keefe, a freelance patent lawyer, wanted to prove that the new cheap Australian system, which allowed inventors to draft a patent online without the help of lawyers such as himself, was flawed. To that end he submitted a patent application for what he called a circular transportation facilitation device. Stripped of the personal involvement of a specialist lawyer, the new streamlined system immediately granted him a patent for the wheel. Now, we can't
3: look at gratitude without mentioning the holiday that's celebrated so enthusiastically by our cousins across the Atlantic, known as Thanksgiving it doesn't seem completely certain exactly what it is that the Americans are being thankful for. The most popular belief is that the tradition of Thanksgiving began with the first harvest festival held by the pilgrims in the October of 1621, a festival attended also by the local Native Americans, or Red Indians. Darker tales, however, are told of the natives being forced to attend, and even that the thanks are given for the colonists' violent suppression of the indigenous population. Whatever its true origin, these days, Thanksgiving Day in the United States is generally a happy occasion, both secular and religious. Many hymns and folk songs have been written around it, including the shaker song, Simple Gifts. Thought by some, to be a song received directly from the spirit world, but more generally attributed to the shaker, songwriter and author Joseph Brackett in 1848. The piece is described in several shaker manuscripts as a dance as much as a song. The movements themselves, suggested by the various references to bowing, bending, turning and ending up in the right place. "'Tis the gift to be simple, "'Tis the gift to be free." One of the most misunderstood characters of 20th century American literature is Eleanor Porter's Pollyanna, according to Janice Wilhauer in Psychology Today.
0: Phil? When most people think of Pollyanna, they think of an overly optimistic goody-goody who doesn't see the harsh reality of the world. The term Pollyanna has taken on quite a negative connotation and you frequently hear people using the term apologetically, I hate to be a Pollyanna, or critically, stop being such a Pollyanna. In fact, Pollyanna was not unrealistic or overly optimistic about anything. She was a little girl with a very poor but very wise father who recognised the duality of everything in life and taught her to play a game based on this idea. Pollyanna's game was known as the Glad game. One day, Pollyanna's father, who was a church missionary supported by donations from the Ladies' Aid Society, received a long-awaited donation box for his family. Pollyanna, who had very few toys, had been wishing with all her might for a doll, but the only thing for her to play with was a broken pair of crutches. When Pollyanna started to cry, her father promised her that if she stopped crying, he would teach her to play a game that would bring her more happiness than any doll ever could. He taught her that in every situation, no matter how bad it might seem, you could always find something to be glad about if you looked hard enough. Pollyanna and her father played that game every day, looking as hard as they could to find the thing that they could be glad about in every situation. The more difficult the situation, the more fun and challenging it was for them. After a while, the game became automatic to Pollyanna. She often didn't even realise she was playing it. She had just trained herself to see the silver lining, or what she could be grateful for, in every situation. Pollyanna began to teach the game to everyone she met, and life-altering transformations started to occur for all who played. While the story of Pollyanna was originally published in 1913 by Eleanor Porter, it wasn't until almost a 100 years later when, as we've been hearing, the field of positive psychology began to seriously study gratitude on the effects of emotional well-being. Gratitude may also be beneficial to people with medical illnesses. One study found that cardiac patients who practised being grateful reported better sleep, less fatigue, and lower levels of cellular inflammation, while another study found that heart failure patients who kept a gratitude journal for eight weeks had less inflammation afterward. So, if someone dares call you a Pollyanna, just smile and say, thank you. So... What
3: is
1: a gratitude journal? Jane's tried one. I think we've all heard the term well-being in the past two difficult years. And one of the spin-offs of this, and there are many, is the gratitude journal and, of course, a gratitude diary. They appear to be the same thing. These are apparently to encourage the practice of gratitude and increase your sense of well-being. One of the adverts for the diary says, Start each day with a grateful heart. A morning and evening diary to increase positivity and happiness. There are, of course, many of these diaries available from many different sellers. Even 13 best gratitude journals recommended by mental health experts. So how does this work? Instructions on the website say two times a week, write a detailed entry about one thing you are grateful for. This could be a person, a job, a great meal with friends, or anything else that comes to mind. Don't rush to write down the first thing that comes to your mind. Take time to truly think about what you are grateful for. So. Does this actually increase your happiness and well-being? A study at the University of California found that people who wrote gratitude letters reported significantly better mental health than those who didn't. But the crucial thing is they wrote those letters in addition to receiving counselling. Now, I'm not knocking gratitude as a spiritual practice – In fact, it has numerous benefits, as we've heard. But misplaced gratitude can be harmful. How? Well, you are in danger of ignoring the negatives. After all, it is sometimes necessary to dig through the uncomfortable in life. If your usual thing is to stuff emotions down, through food, shallow breaths or feelings of deep resentment, solely keeping a gratitude journal is likely to make this worse. Using an ordinary journal, where you can describe your feelings altogether, will help you get yourself back on track. I must admit to keeping a gratitude journal as well as my usual journal, when someone gave me a really lovely empty-lined book, The Christmas After My Husband Died Seven Years Ago. It lasted two weeks with such entries as that I have family and friends who've offered to help me or that I have choices or that I have my health or arriving home safely after a long drive. Then I decided that there was so much to be grateful for it was a bit silly to keep listing them. So now I keep my usual journal of good and bad and I'm just grateful that I'm me and alive. Does that count?
2: Thank you very much for the entry, yeah, and Thank you very much. very, very, very much. Thank you very much for the Thank you very, very, very much. Thank you
6: very much for
3: the Do you remember a group in the 60s and 70s known as The Scaffold? They wrote and recorded songs such as Lily the Pink and the theme to the BBC comedy programme The Liver Birds. One of their most popular songs consisted of an inventory of things to be thankful for. It was called Thank You Very Much and included the mysterious line Thank you very much for the Aintree Iron. Well, it's a mystery to me at any rate. The song was written by Paul McCartney's brother, Mike McGear, and performed by him and the two other members of the group, John Gorman and Roger McGough. These days, Roger McGough is a very well-respected poet and last year he visited Worcester. John Plush went down for a chat.
6: So, Roger McGough, The Scaffold. Mm. How did you arrive at the name, The Scaffold?
7: Ah, yes, Um, we were originally called the Liverpool One Fat Lady or Electric Show Um, for reasons because we lived in Liverpool Eight, and in bingo terminology, One Fat Lady, is eight, So Liverpool, One Fat Lady, All Electric Show. Um, and the, the name is a bit long, you know, a bit long. But then we were doing sort of comedy and poetry sketches, very little music. Uh, but when we used to have a song at the end of the show sometime, thank you very much, M- Mike had written the song, thank you very much for coming along, that sort of thing. And we were offered a recording contract. And so we changed our name and needed something... Snappy, and I thought the idea of the scaffold, because we used to, a lot of the stuff we did was political, satirical, you know, we went to comedy, comedies, so the idea, we used to wear all black, black gloves, all that sort of thing, so it was like scaffold execution, so we used to take political leaders and execute them on stage, uh, satirically, using words, so uh, but that, people also thought it was something to do with scaffolding, of course, outside houses, that was the name, yeah.
6: When you speak of executing political figures, were you
7: a bit of a rebel? I don't think so, really. I'm never not a vocal one. I mean, uh, you, you tend to be independent, I suppose, uh, in a way, um, but not a rebel. I wouldn't glue myself to the to the pavement. I mean, uh, you know, like extinction and uh, so forth, rebellion. Uh, thinking about that today, I was just talking with my wife in the car, and thinking of the way the extent and. You know the courage it takes for a lot of people to suffer the way they do in in the name of something and the cause in a cause, for a cause. And I, I can couldn't do that really. I sort of um, admire the guts, but I, I'd uh, I'd sort of write a poem about it. <laughs> <laughs> write a poem.
6: <laughs> what inspired you when you first started writing?
7: My first poems were about um, about falling in love when I was a whole university, about falling in and out of love and. I was influenced at the time by a lot of French poets. I did French at uni, um, schoolboy French, in fact, um, but reading about Rimbaud and Baudelaire and these French poets uh, who you know were, were married to poetry, uh, you know, it obsessed them, as did drugs and hallucination and so forth and so on, and that seemed pretty pretty wild when I was young, and uh, so I liked that, so I did a lot of poems in that sort of style. Then I remember... Getting a job in Scarborough as a waiter during the summer holiday and writing poems and being a waiter. And it's very funny. I came across the poem just a, a while ago, a short while. And it's very funny. It's almost as if I'd written it last week. I was interested. I thought, blimey. you know, I had this, some, some sort of gift quite early on, you know, when I, when I st- just r- let myself loose anyway. a I forgot about Baudelaire and Velen and Rambo and just wrote about being a waiter in Scarborough. I found a voice.
6: I've read somewhere that uh, when you're writing a poem, sometimes you'll start at the end.
7: I do, yeah, I do. If have got a good ending. And work backwards. Is often do start with ending, but I may... Um, yeah, probably sometimes I do start with ending, but often you've got the first line, you've the last line, and you've got to fill in the gap in the middle. You've got to put the ham in the sandwich or the cheese. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's quite fun. It's all what, fun. What's
6: the most important thing then, the idea behind the poem or the form of the words?
7: No, I think often the words direct where the poem goes in a way I mean it's complicated because sometimes you think I want to write a poem about something I mean sometimes you asked to write a poem about something commissioned to write a poem about something and then the, you focus on that I was commissioned to write a poem about the, the David Attenborough the Sir, Sir David Attenborough a scientific ship leaving Birkenhead to go down to the Antarctic and so that's the, that's, you've got to think that in your mind you've got to present something that is recognisably that you can't be too surreal in a sense um, so you start that off and, uh, and then use the language and imagination into it but sometimes the imagination can just kick off or the words kick, kick off and uh, lead you by the hand in a way in a sense and you follow it and I think sometimes people impose themselves too much into a poem when they're writing it you know what I mean, and, and, like, sharpen it up or redirect it and, uh, you know, it's, uh, correct it, if you like, because uh, it's not going according to what they think the poem should be about. And I don't like that. I like to be fully free.
6: What about your audience? Uh, would you be annoyed if you thought that your audience were misinterpreting what you'd write? I
7: assume they misinterpret a lot. I know, I know they do, and I know audiences will. And uh, think about it, when you do a live audience, uh, of course, we're reading, there's some... you can steer the way towards what, what the poem is about and also when I'm putting together a programme for an evening's reading I select the poems where they go what they lead on to they lead on to something else maybe this certain subjects they will cover move to something else and so you're the, you take the people with you now you've translated
6: three of Moliere's plays including Tartuffe which I studied at school although oh, oui. sadly it wasn't in your translation no. does Moliere speak in Roger Bacoff's voice? That's no, funny enough, well this is it,
7: because that was a great thing to do I wrote this, uh, as you know, I wrote a trilogy of the Moliere's, so I did Misanthrope and uh, Tattoo first, then Ipichondriac, and I was asked to do it by the, the, the little Playhouse, I thought I can't do this even though I did French uni- university my French isn't good enough, you know but I went to look at various translations and um, Liz Lockhead, the Scottish poet, did a very funny one uh, not funny, but good one, but in Scottish dialect, and looked at other writers that had done them. But what I did, I got the Moliere, not in the French translation, but in, in English translations, of American translations usually. So I took the plot and just let them speak. And once I gave voice to the people, like Madame Pernell, as soon as she started speaking to, you know, the maid. I took over the voice. So I always had a, a photograph, a picture of Moliere on my desk, and I was re- referred to him in a way, and so it was like a sort of McGoffier type book. So I was very conscious. I didn't want to. Uh, there's nothing wrong with. I think he, he would have approved, although I'd done it, because I, I played with, a, with kept the same strengths there and I didn't uh, destroy anything. Because and, and, um, I know a lot of translation I've seen whereby there's quite a lot of. He c- c- was a failed Catholic, or would be Catholic was Molière, because that's the French word at that time. And he failed, but he tried to be all that. But a lot of people have dismissed that in a way as unimportant. I sort of brought that back. And, um, and I think it was, you know, people laughed out loud, <laughs> which I think uh, Molly would have enjoyed.
6: You're very adept with the minutiae of life. How attracted are you to the bigger picture?
7: Well, yeah, I think the bigger subjects are the minutiae of life takes, takes in the bigger subjects in a way. You can't take in the bigger subjects in a, way, in a sense, in the philosophical sense or in infinity. Um, yeah, there are people who try to do that, uh, philosophers, uh, nuclear scientists, and so forth. Um, but minutiae is what most people can can see, and uh, it moves from beyond mm. there. Look look at the small thing, and then look up, see, you know, look at the leaf, and then you see the tree. In mm. a way, it's no it's no use trying to paint in the forest. Mm. You, can, you can, you know what I mean. It's the minutiae that leads you on, can yeah. lead you on to yeah. Yeah. A, a larger vision. You were on desert island discs a
6: while mm. ago, and. That got me thinking. If you're on this desert island, there's nobody else there, no one there to hear or read your poems. Mm. Would you still write them?
7: Oh yeah, yeah. I, mean, I still think I'm on a desert island, really. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I, it's um. Yeah, there must be a dichotomy, I suppose, in in my <coughs> character. I, I've got to be doing writing. Is my what I do all the time, Um so I will always go go to writing. So it's for myself. You don't um, need an audience? No, not really. I'm always, I mean, it's like um, I've said before that I, I enjoy being on stage, but I don't like people looking at me. And that's in a way of doing it. And, and I think uh, I've always been that way. The idea that people actually read my books, I can't imagine it. People sit down reading my, one of my books. Presumably they do because they buy them. But it's, always a, it's a different thing. It's a difference.
6: Yeah. Is poetry a friend to you, or a demon? Oh,
7: friend, yeah. Friend, friend, friend. You don't feel pursued by the muse? I don't mind. No, she's very nice, actually. I could describe her to you, but I would Why is poetry important to you? Um, well, for, for all the reasons probably I've been nattering on about, in a sense. I, I could natter on not not a lot about other things. Uh, it keeps me um, transfixed. Um keeps me head on the ground, I mean Feet on the ground, head in the, head in the I air. I liked head on the ground. I'd better, yeah, head on the ground, feet <laughs> in the air. Yeah. Mm.
6: And it pays the bill. To some
7: extent, yeah. It's not. It's only about poetry, of course. I mean, there, there were times in my life when I could have gone in different directions, when I could have gone into advertising and copywriting and uh, screenplays and stuff. Um, but I, I was never drawn to that, really. I just liked this sort of freedom.
6: You're glad you didn't do that?
7: I am really, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it might have made. Well, I don't know. I'll I, be probably in LA now, on a beach, surrounded by lovely women. Yeah, massaging my back and all that. But you know, it's a, yeah, but yeah, I'd rather be here. Thanks. I'd rather be here mostly. I don't see ach- achievement in terms of uh, you know prizes or or awards. That's always comforting and mm. to know that people like your work and you know you're, you're doing all right. I think it's safe to say that people like your work. Thank you. Can you read us some? I just, can I just give you a very short little poem? Um, the new book is called Safety in Numbers. And the lockdown began for me March the 11th, 2020. I went up to Liverpool for a gig in Liverpool, and it was for uh, local heads and he- head to English teachers. But it was the day that Liverpool played Atletico Madrid at Anfield. So imagine you arrive in Liverpool and, you know, the scousers were outnumbered by wonderful jumping up and down um, Madrid, Spanish people. And of course, you brought the COVID up? Or they said, unknowingly. And everybody was sort of, uh-uh. And I had the sense on the train back and on the underground everywhere else that something was changing, something was happening. And no longer that sort of being together has got to change. was looking at each other suspiciously. And uh, so I wrote this little poem Four Liner called Safety in Numbers Safety in Numbers Not anymore The room starts to fill I'm out of the door
6: It's quite a shift Tell us about Paul McCartney's trousers
7: Well, when I was at the scaffold Mike Handed on Paul used to give Mike old clothes not old clothes clothes he'd worked at wore on top of the pops because he'd got suits by the ton, you know, suits or buy new suits for the band and he'd wear them a couple of times give them to Mike dress them up because we were all so I was a teacher and Mike was a hairdresser and then Mike used to give them to me uh, some of his clothes so I had a, a Paul suit and a few shirts and he used to wear them but they didn't really fit quite and uh, I put them away and then when I I gave the jacket away it didn't fit and I came across the trousers a few years ago Oh, Paul's trousers, hmm, he's quite famous, hmm. But the moths have got to them, the moths have got to the crutch and all the holes in them. So I had them framed and hung up for years at, in Liverpool, the, uh, the museum, Liverpool Museum. And they've just been returned to me now because the place has been flooded and they've redistributed. Uh, so I'm the proud owner of um, Paul McCartney's uh, work of art trousers. So if anyone wants to buy a pair of Paul McCartney's trousers, beautifully framed with a poem on the side, How much? (laughs) We couldn't afford it. You couldn't afford it. (laughs) Roger
6: McGough. Thank you very, 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 very much.
7: (laughs) Thank you. Pleasure.
3: So, did you learn what the Aintree iron is or was? Well, the internet
6: is awash with theories about the Aintree iron. None of them in any way
7: conclusive, Pippa. So I asked him and this is what he said. hoping you wouldn't ask me that. I was really hoping you wouldn't ask me that because... um, We made a pact years ago, the scaffold, three of us, involving blood and wrists and cuts, never to reveal what the entry (laughs) iron (laughs) was.
3: John Plush there, talking to a very cagey Roger McGough. Roger was described by Carol Ann Duffy as the patron saint of poetry, and she should know, as she was poet laureate at the time, and wrote some pretty emotive pieces herself including this one for the 1010 climate change campaign back in
2: 2010. Catherine. This poem is called Virgil's Bees. Bless air's gift of sweetness, honey from the bees, inspired by clover, marigold, eucalyptus, thyme, the hundred perfumes of the wind. Bless the beekeeper who chooses for her hives a site near water, violet beds, No you, no echo. Let the light lilt, leak, green or gold, pigment for queens, and joy be inexplicable but there, in harmony of willow herb and stream, of summer heat and breeze, each bee's body at its brilliant flower, lover stunned, strumming on fragrance, smitten. For this... Let gardens grow, where bee lines end, sighing in roses, saffron blooms, buddlier, where bees prey on their knees, sing, praise in pear trees, plum trees. Bees are the batteries of orchards, gardens, guard them.
3: As that poem suggests... Bees are an essential contributor to human existence and must be preserved. One way we can help bees to prosper is to provide a suitable environment, for example, in our own gardens. Mike Lane has some tips for Vanya Carlton in our gardening slot, Growing Sense. <laughs>
8: Hi. Hi, Vanya. What are we going to do today?
9: Right, the fruit trees. With the weather being quite dry, as it is at the moment, it's it's a good opportunity to start planting uh, fruit trees. Okay. One of the best ways to buy these things is called bare root. Now, bare root plants basically mean there's no soil. Mm -hmm. Uh, So basically, I dug up in a field, given a quick shake, and quite often put into a plastic bag, and then sent out to your house through mail order yes there's plenty of places online where you can purchase them from um, and actually makes buying a tree quite affordable and
8: of course this is the year where we should all be planting trees isn't it for well, the jubilee
9: definitely definitely platinum jubilee that's yeah. it it is a good time to be pl- planting planting those trees um when they arrive quite often you could just put them to one side or maybe two to three weeks before planting okay providing you leave them in the bag And the roots are still moist within the bag.
8: Yeah, I understand.
9: Then what you can do is, uh, say 24 hours before planting, put the roots into a bucket bucket of water Mm -hmm. and soak it overnight. Okay. And then your tree will be ready to transplant the following day into a container or straight into the ground. Yeah. You can put a stake around the tree, just to support it upright.
8: Okay, so how do I put the stake in? Is it best to put the stake in at the same time as you put the tree in and then cover it all?
9: So... Dig a hole, yeah. a bit of um, compost or organic matter on the bottom of the hole, mm-hmm. put the tree in or the soil back in, push it hard down with your feet, and then i will possibly tamp a stake in for them to tie a tree tie to hold the tree in position. Good. This time of the year, there's always some other winter jobs to do, isn't there? Oh, there's yes. some house plants which you may have brought inside, such as your scented pelagoniums, and there's also things like orchids which you can grow in a bathroom. Which don't really need too much watering. Just just use a bit of a mister. Okay. And there's and there's a, a climbing ja- jasmine as well, which will also Beautiful. indoor one, yeah. which will smell good. Perhaps um, we can talk
8: about orchids because I've got two orchids, and one of them flowered the year before last, but didn't flower last year.
9: Yeah, they're very hard to grow.
8: Oh, okay yes. generally
9: um yeah. they tend to flower for long periods and then they they're dormant for a long time yes they don't tend to need much water no you may want to occasionally look at possibly potting them on
8: yes i've done that and they did have Use... a bit of a growth spurt then they yeah. enjoyed that but yeah. uh, they just look a bit bored i'm thinking you know how can i get them to flower again
9: yeah plants generally are very tricky to to keep alive
8: Yes. And actually,
9: at least with salvias and things like pelagoniums as well, geraniums, you can actually have them in a pot and then bring them inside for the winter. Yes. Uh, And sometimes they will continue to flower Mm -hmm. um, and don't give them too much water.
8: Yes, yeah. And then start to feed them again in the spring when they do start to shoot and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, what have we got in this bucket, Mike?
9: Right, well, here we've got loads of exciting bits of twigs and bamboo canes. And a couple of fir cones.
8: So what are you going to do with all of that then?
9: Build a a bug house. Okay, tell me how. The the exciting thing about this is is we always think about the garden, but we don't always know what's living in the garden. So by producing this bug house or bug hotel, it just allows insects such as bees, moths, worms, snails, slugs, spiders. So, So it encourages them. Encourage them in to live within the garden. So right, let me just get these whoa out right there's a couple of ways in doing this some people possibly would just just find a corner yes and just build build a pile of twigs uh, maybe some cardboard uh, other canes possibly bits of wood as well and then the idea is that the insects can just climb inside over the winter and all year round, and just live within this house or hotel okay Uh, but what we're going to do today i've picked up a small. Seven centimeter pot. pot. Yeah. So all we're going to do is just layer.
8: So you're you're holding the pot on its side. Holding the pot um, on its side. uh, Yeah. How long are these pieces of stick? About the same
9: depth. Yeah, about the same depth of the pot. Just just like you collected a handful handful of pencils off the desk. So they're in there tightly. And you just put them tightly into the pot. Yeah. Uh, And then once this is produced, find somewhere in the garden where you're happy for it to stay all year round
8: and you leave it horizontal leave it
9: horizontal i would just possibly just tip it slightly because you don't want to gather any water within the plastic so pot drown. because yeah. obviously they will drown so if you just tip it you know forward slightly so it'll be a nice dry area and obviously the idea now is for the the insects to sort of climb into
8: there yeah, and I can see that the bamboo canes have got hollows in, so the, some of the insects are going to go inside there, aren't they? That's Not it. only between the the bamboo, yep. but actually inside the bamboo. That's as well. it.
9: Yep. And and then over time, um, ideally, if you can plant some other other plants around this area, uh, which 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 would then bring insects into into it, yeah. Uh, and the more, say, ladybirds and other things we have in the garden, yeah. then it's straight away killing off the aphids. And oh, other things which, yeah. which 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 we don't want in the garden. Yeah, that's a good um, idea. So we, I could so put one of
8: those near my tomato plants.
9: Put one of them by your tomato plant would would be ideal. Could
8: I stick some moss in there as well? Would that help?
9: Possibly around, if you wanted to. Around just, it, just, just, to just to camouflage the pot. The pot to possibly insulate it a bit. Yeah. yeah.
8: Tell me, what are the fir cones for then?
9: Oh, uh, the fir cones. If you take a look at the look at the fir oh, cone, the You see all the crevices inside. You can feel them, can't so you? You just take out some of these
8: bamboo amazing.
9: canes you could just put oh, a that's nice a fir cone in and
8: um, they're protected in there from the birds aren't yes they? yeah exactly yeah. exactly so mike what are we going to talk about next time we meet up which will be um in april
9: yes april a busy a busy month so i think possibly we could start looking at seeds grass seeding potentially and what plants we could start to grow on Ready for the summer months.
8: Yes, I'm looking forward to some spring some, weather.
9: I think we're all looking forward to some spring weather, aren't we? So uh, <laughs> yes. on that note, should we go back inside and uh, yes. grab, grab a drink? <laughs> Good idea, Mike.
8: <laughs> right. Bye.
9: Bye.
0: Now, do you agree with Shakespeare's King Lear on the subject of gratitude when he says, famously, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child? He's referring to his daughter Cordelia's response to being asked to declare publicly how much she loves him so that he can decide how much of his kingdom to give her. He finds her apparent ingratitude painful, but she refuses to play ball and says, I love your majesty according to my bond, no more nor less. She means she loves him like a daughter should. He thinks she means that she has a sense of duty towards him and no more. Hours of Shakespearean misery follow in which both come to grief, but it does highlight for us one of the problems with the whole idea of gratitude. I suppose it was the annual challenge of selecting Christmas presents that brought this to mind, and here's why. When I was growing up, my mother instilled a number of lessons, as mothers do, and preeminent among them was that one should always show gratitude when given something, especially as a birthday or Christmas present. Moreover, that gratitude should be strong and fulsome and most certainly not, that's definitely not, be influenced by what that gift was and whether I liked it or not. Now, you may feel that there's not much to disagree with so far, but listen on. The downside of this is that the giver of the present has every right, in the face of such a positive reaction, to assume that the gratitude is not only due for the act of giving, but also for the nature of the presi itself – Worse, that because they knew I was aware that they were going to give me a present, say, at Christmas, my apparently heartfelt reaction must be largely for the item rather than the process. Even then we could still be on Easy Street except for one overwhelming fact. My relatives were the worst choosers of presents in the entire history of Western civilization. I had no aunts or uncles, but plenty of great aunts and uncles – They had no idea what a child wanted, and here's the point. The only feedback they got was the stream of gratitude on which Mum insisted. Appeals were useless. But Mum, they keep buying me the same stuff because they think I like it. Couldn't you tell them? Don't
1: be ungrateful, Philip. Some children in the world don't get anything.
0: Lucky them.
1: That's enough. Go and help your father with the washing up.
0: Imagine my feelings then to find later in life that I'd married someone who was quite prepared to turn a nose up at an unsuitable offering with what did you buy me this for? Real serpent's tooth stuff, I thought. Now this could have gone one of two ways and you may have a view of your own here. Do I try a good deal harder next time? Or do I think blow that by your own present? Yes, I tried harder. Until the wonderful Christmas when, bereft of hope, she decided to tell me what to get. George. So we now all realise that ingratitude can work. I think it's a little like the difference between politeness and thoughtfulness, where politeness is often a formal code of behaviour to be applied whatever the circumstances, but where consideration takes account of real people in real situations. There are plenty of my acquaintance to whom I would not say, after you, or hold a door open because they don't want it and would not thank me for it, and I respect that. Gratitude can be too formal, too automatic, too unnuanced. The moral is be careful what you say thank you for. And when you say it, there's been a tendency of late to thank us for something that we've yet to do. Thank you for not smoking. Thank you for wearing a mask. I don't know about you, but I find it annoying for some reason. It assumes too much. Gratitude, to mean anything, must be a response to an action, not a presumption.
3: Indeed. Expressing gratitude in some situations is dropping out of fashion altogether, as Sally Guyancourt noticed, writing in the I. Jane.
1: Sorry may be the hardest word, but it turns out thank you is a phrase which now goes without saying, a study has found. Research published in Royal Society Open Science has revealed there is an unspoken expectation of cooperation in many societies around the world, and so thank you is surplus to requirements. Authors of the study said, in our data from everyday informal interaction across the world, we find an abundance of episodes in which people successfully elicit another's provision of a good, service or support in the practicalities of everyday life around the home or village. What is striking, however, is that most of these episodes culminate without the beneficiaries expressing gratitude. In fact, researchers discovered that in some of the languages they looked at, there was no word or phrase to say thank you, such as chapala in Ecuador. And even in languages such as English and Italian, where the phrase thank you is in common parlance, the rate of thank yous is very low in cooperative events in informal interaction. Researchers looked at the 1,057 instances of request-type sequences extracted from recordings of informal conversation in eight languages around the world lead author, linguistics professor Nick Enfield from Sydney University and his team, believe the absence of thank you is because there is a tacit understanding of social rights and duties to mutual assistance and collaboration. They concluded, when someone's cooperation is expected as part of their contribution to the running of everyday affairs, It is not necessary to explicitly express gratitude on the spot. In fact, some cultures around the world
3: regard the expression of gratitude in certain circumstances as completely unacceptable behaviour. In parts of both India and China, members of the same
2: family and even close friends rarely say thank you. Why? Matthew Miller, an American living in China, explains... Chinese people are taught to be very polite to strangers. Politeness includes saying things like, thank you, please, and so on. You'll find that if you're on a Chinese street and you say help an old lady down from the bus, she and her daughter will profusely thank you. But once you become married to a Chinese person or good friends with a Chinese person or part of a Chinese family, that quickly changes. Now you're supposed to be close, like family, and you're supposed to be honest. If your good friend wears clothing that looks terrible, you will tell them. If you're gaining too much weight, your Chinese mother-in-law will tell you, you're getting fat, stop eating so much, it looks terrible. Once you're in the group, saying things like thank you is seen as too distant. It's the way you act towards strangers on the street. And if you treat family like strangers, that's very insulting. Having said that, Chinese close friends and family actually do say polite things. They just do not say it outright. For example, if a good friend went out of his or her way to cook for a friend, instead of saying, thank you for cooking for me, which would make them uncomfortable as being too polite and distant, they will often say something like, you worked hard. It's their way of saying thank you without actually saying it directly.
3: In India, people especially when they're your elders, relatives or close friends, tend to feel that by thanking them, you're violating your intimacy with them and creating formality and distance that shouldn't exist. Deepak Singh, a North Indian immigrant, says, In India, when someone is thanked, it implies a sincere debt of gratitude for going above and beyond the call of duty. So for an everyday transaction, to use those same words can be seen as insincere, and thus quite insulting. In the Hindi language, in everyday gestures and culture, there is an unspoken understanding of gratitude. In our story this month, an old lady's rather misplaced gratitude to her carers goes disastrously awry. Sarah Thomas Lane reads, The Treasure Hunters.
5: The garden's looking lovely this morning, Vera. Crystal looked out over the scrap-heap jungle of tumble-down sheds, dead bushes and wild briars, woven into a thick mass of rampant convolvulus. The lawn's like a big green carpet. And Dwayne's been working on the borders for you. Such a pity you can't see him from your bed. The gladioluses are... um, very pretty, are they dear? replied Vera Morecambe. That's splendid. You both look after the place so well for me. By the way, they're gladioli, dear, not gladioluses. Yeah, whatever. I've brought you tea. Here and Crystal set the cup and saucer carefully down between the tissues and the small round pot on Mrs. Morecambe's bedside table. "'Thank you, Marcia. "'Marcia, dear, could you look in my purse "'and see how much change I have left? "'I don't want to run too low.' Marcia Crystal Blake took the leather purse from the chest of drawers in the corner over to the window and lifted out three ten-pound notes. Oh, there's only a couple of quid here, Vera. "'Shall I get Duane to go down the post office today?' "'Oh, yes, dear, if you would,' Mrs. Morecambe sipped her tea. "'I don't know where it all goes.' For the best part of five years, since the old lady's 92nd birthday, in fact, Crystal and her boyfriend Duane had been caring for Vera Morecambe in her roomy but dilapidated Georgian villa overlooking the city. Cushy number, Duane had said when Crystal showed him the advertisement for a living housekeeper. Mum spotted it, she explained. Said it would give me stability. You, stable. They don't call you crystal meth for nothing, do they, eh? One sniff of that and you're on the ceiling. Stable. (laughs) Only once, crackhead. Only once. Couldn't afford no more, could I? But if you get this job, You can get as much as we want. As if, said Crystal. But Crystal, Marcia, to Mrs. Morecambe, had got the job, and her boyfriend, or husband, as far as Mrs. Morecambe was concerned, had been appointed gardener and general handyman, notwithstanding his lack both of tools and the ability to use them. Having been quite a notable lady of society in the nineteen thirties and forties, and with spectacular connections to powerful people of all denominations in various corners of the world, Vera had now, in Crystal's words, well lost it, becoming increasingly, in Vera's words, forgetful, a trifle confused, and for the last three and a half years confined to her bed. Lean forward for me, Vera! I'll pump up your pillows. There. That better? Upon becoming a widow some years before, her already deteriorating mental health had rendered Vera easy game for at least one equity release shark, and as a result, although she was allowed to continue living there, the Georgian house she had shared with Gerald he's in the Foreign Office, you know was no longer technically hers. The scant payout she had received in return failing to cover Gerald's gambling decks and former lifestyle. Her scaled-down government widow's pension was her sole income, and it was only that and her dwindling savings that supported the employment of a housekeeper and a gardener. Crystal and Duane, however, were not aware of Vera's tricky financial position, seeing the grand house as evidence of equally grand wealth. But there was more. Vera had an unfortunate habit of hinting at the existence of some additional personal fortune, which seemed from her occasionally semi-coherent ramblings, to be contained somehow amongst her personal effects. Don't worry about me, dear, she would confide to Crystal. The Maharaja's pot will keep me in my old age. Or, there's more than enough in the king's coffers. Or, the Khalifa's money box will provide, have no fear. She's nuts, diagnosed Duane. Yeah, she's nuts, all right, but the old witch has got some at Stash away, I know it, replied Crystal. Somewhere in this house, there's a box full of treasure, trust me. We find it, Dwayney boy, and we're out of here. Dwayne searched the house from top to bottom. Cupboards were ransacked, floorboards shamelessly ripped up the attic emptied as promising-looking chests and suitcases were taken downstairs into the lights to be torn open for inspection. He even knocked down a suspect wall in the basement, only to reveal a spidery array of disused gas pipes. There's only the old Bat's bedroom we haven't been through, said Duane after a particularly smelly encounter with the house's private sewerage system. It's got to be in there, that treasure chest or whatever it is. Have you looked under the bed? Of course I've looked under the bed, stupid. And in the wardrobe and the drawers, there's no treasure chest in there. How about under the floor? suggested Duane. Are we going to lift the floorboards without her noticing? It took you nearly a month to get the floorboards up in the living room. Noise was terrible. I had to tell her it was men working on the road. What well, didn't have the proper tools, did I? countered Duane, almost as if he knew what the proper tools might have been. ''I only had an armor. ''Whatever tools you use, she ain't going to miss you pulling up the floorboards in her own bedroom, is she? You know she never even gets out of bed these days.'' ''So leave her in bed,'' said Duane. ''But move the bed out. Put her in a different room. Tell her, I don't know, tell her the roof is leaking and the ceiling's going to fall in, so she has to move to another room.'' "'Then we can go in and have a proper look!' "'All right,' said Crystal, pulling a ten-pound note from her jeans pocket. "'Here, i got this from the old girl's purse this morning. "'Go and buy yourself a proper crowbar.' That evening, as Crystal was bedding Vera down for the night... The old lady leaned forward and spoke quietly but urgently. Marcia, dear, I have something I need to tell you. My son and daughter-in-law have phoned to say they're coming to see me. Some years earlier, Vera's daughter-in-law had divorced her son and gone to live in America, from where she maintained strict radio silence. Her son, meanwhile, following in his father's footsteps, had taken to alcohol and been killed in a drink-driving incident near Leeds. Unable to assimilate these facts, however, Vera often came up with this impossible news. The first time she heard it, Crystal, unaware that the heralded visit was a fiction, flew into a panic, cleaning the house for the first time, appealing to her mother to come in and play the part of the cook, and making Duane mow the lawns and mend the front door. This pantomime occurred twice more before Crystal realised that no such visitor was ever going to appear. So these days she just ignored it and left the house to deteriorate at its own pace once more. But this time it was different. Leaning closer still, Mrs. Morecambe whispered, I know what they're after. What? My special treasure? Crystal felt a sudden tensing at the base of her skull. "'You're special,' she started. "'But they're not getting it,' Vera spat. "'Treasure,' whispered Crystal with an attempt at nonchalance. Vera became more agitated still. "'But they're coming to take it. Steal it from me!' Her voice rose higher it strippers, that's what they are. Vera, come down. No one's going to steal from you. We'll look after you. The old lady's eyes glazed a little as she relaxed and rested back on her pillow. Yes, dear. Yes, I believe you will. You've always looked after me. He's a fine man, isn't he? Your Gerald. Gerald? Oh, yeah. <gasps> a fine man. Would, uh, would you like some hot milk, Vera? A fine man. Sorry, dear. Milk? Shall I get you some hot milk? Oh, yes, dear. Thank you. A fine man. Crystal turned and made for the door, wondering how to make the best of this turn of events. Marcia? Mrs. Morecambe? I want you to have it. Crystal nearly passed out where she stood. Vera? And she turned back to the bed where her benefactor in charge was sitting upright once more, more full of life than Crystal had ever seen her. You must have it! As a thank you from me and my husband. Thank you for looking after us and our beautiful house all these years. We'll soon be gone, and it's right that you should have it. Crystal said as gently as she could, Where is it, Vera? What, dear? The money. The treasure. Your special treasure. Where'd you keep it? Oh just here. And she gestured vaguely towards the bedside table and the small round pot that always sat there next to the tissues. That crystal was crushed. The almost spherical pot was about three inches across, yellow and with a faded oriental design around the base. "'Instead of a lid, the top of the pot had just a small hole. "'Looks like my old piggy bank from when I was a kid,' "'thought Crystal bitterly. "'We'll get much treasure in there.' "'She said out loud, "'I'll get you milk,' and went downstairs. Duane had just come in, holding a brightly painted crowbar. "'You all right?' he asked. "'Stupid cat!' she seethed. "'All this time leading us on.' Empress Fortune, King's Ransom. The Maharaja will look after us. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Whoa, hold well on. What do you want to bear? Just give it us. What? A special treasure. What? A fortune, a money, a secret stash, you stupid crane. Just give it us. Give it me. Oh, I don't know. What? She thinks her stupid son is coming again. "'Thinks he's going to take all her money, "'a uh, special treasure, she calls it. "'So she's give it me instead. "'Us!' "'What is it?' "'Crystal took a deep breath. "'It's a stupid, peddling little kid's piggy bank!' "'She hissed. "'There's money in piggy banks!' "'Offered Duane helpfully. "'That's what they're for!' Crystal said sarcastically, Oh, yeah, this one's full of money. It's this big. And she made a circle with her thumbs and forefingers. She went to the fridge. I'm taking this stupid ass of milk. Come up with me and see. And she thinks you're Gerald. Gerald? they made their way upstairs, Duane realized he still was holding the crowbar. Better put that down. Don't want to frighten the old biddy. Vera called out, "Crystal," as she opened the door. "Is your hot milk?" Dway I mean, um, Gerald has come up to say good night. Vera Morcombe, what's dead? Oh, for f- sake," said Crystal. What do we do now? mumbled Duane, staring at the figure in the bed. I think we're supposed to call the police, mumbled Crystal. Before we do, began Duane. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, might as well, continued Crystal. And she bent forward to the bedside table. She glanced across at Vera and then grabbed the pot and brandished it at Duane. That's it, she said angrily. That, that's her treasure, and it's ours. Brilliant. Something rattled inside it. There's something in it, observed Duane. Perhaps it's a uh, teeth? Don't be stupid. Couldn't get a teeth in there. Boop well, there's something. Uh, look inside. How can I? There's no lid, just an hole, like a piggy bank, I told you we oh, shake it, Duane suggested. But no amount of shaking would liberate the contents of the pot. Would you think it is? he asked. How the f should I know? Probably just an old penny. A oh, rusty nail. Duane enjoyed a guessing game. Crystal thought for a moment. Or a key. What to? asked Duane. One of them suitcases, said Crystal. "'Nah, I opened all of them. It's not there.' "'Safety deposit?' Crystal suddenly grinned. "'Yeah. Yeah, safety deposit box.' "'I saw a film once. A bloke found a key to a box at the bank. "'There was a treasure chest and all sorts in there. "'Oh, we've got to get that pot open!' Duane was still into the game. "'What if it's a diamond?' One of them big'uns that's worth loads. Oh, for God's sake, Duane, open the thing, insisted Crystal. Duane took it and peered into the hole. It's only clay, screamed Crystal. Just smash it with
1: your crowbar!
5: Amongst the debris, they found a folded-up piece of paper and a rusty nail. The paper was a cutting from a magazine, Antiques Today, published in 1963. Next to a photograph of auctioneer's lot 149, a three-inch diameter yellow ceramic pot with a perforated top and decorated in the base in Chinese style, crystal red. A Chinese so-called security vase of the Ming Dynasty, was sold yesterday by Ampton and Macy auctioneers of Bond Street, London. Lot 149, the vase reportedly the only one of its kind, once owned by the Maharaja of Rajasthan, then by the King of Persia, who is said to have used it to pay a ransom for the kidnapped Khalifa of Baghdad was most recently in the collection of a senior member of the British royal family. It passed yesterday into the hands of a private collector in the foreign office after 15 minutes of intense bidding for the sum of 17 million pounds. 17 million pounds?! So where is it? asked Dwayne excitedly, putting down his crowbar.
3: The Treasure Hunters was written especially for the magazine by John Stanbury and was read by Sarah Thomas Lane. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Look Here, on the topic of Gratitude. So, with huge thanks to Carol Hartle for administration and monumental gratitude to David and Sylvia Day for copying this month and, of course, immeasurable thanks to John Plush for putting it all together, it's goodbye from Catherine. Goodbye. Jane. Goodbye. Phil. Goodbye. And from me, Pippa. But the last word comes from the great Roman philosopher and statesman Marcus Tullius Cicero, who wrote, Gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues but the parent of all others. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.